Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have Mark 10, verses 17 through 31, and we're going to continue to look at what it means to follow Jesus. And so, Alan, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Christy. Yeah, we this whole section of Mark's gospel really talks about discipleship, and we've seen how discipleship involves service to the least of the least. We've seen how it involves caring for the little ones. We've seen how it involves avoiding temptation. We've seen how it even involves identifying with children who were certainly among the least of these. And so now Mark's gospel takes up the question of discipleship and possessions which I think was one of the main themes in Jesus' teaching but it's one that is a bit challenging for us today. You know I, I was thinking about this as I was reading it and of all the various kinds of, if you will, vices that we have, it seems to me that possessions are really part of our human reality. And it's really today one of the hardest things we have trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, we be, it, it really is the thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, yeah. Yeah, and is. so I, I, I thought, well, it makes sense yeah. in any day yeah. why... Um, why this has become kind of the central issue, if you will. And yet, because we are definitely living in a wealthy society, we, ha- we, ha- we, have- we feel like we have to find ways to get around what Jesus actually says here. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. And, 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 and how do you make sense of that? And right. um, I think you're going to find, as we get into the Reformation later, even some question marks there. Mm. And even then, you know, when you talk about um, a Roman Catholic tradition, monastic tradition of literally getting rid of everything, does that really mean you're poor? Right. And um, so what does this really mean? And I'm excited to dig into this today. I found it very fun and interesting to study. Yeah, me too. So our text begins by saying that a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we would think this would be sort of the question on everybody's mind. We're not told who this man is initially, but it's interesting that he addresses Jesus not simply as teacher, as we've seen before, but rather as good teacher. Mm -hmm. And that was not a common form of address in that day. And the approach is made even more unusual by the fact that the man kneels before him. And that detail, this, this, um, this episode is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that detail that the man kneels before him is only mentioned in God, Mark's account. I always love when Mark puts in these little details. And mm-hmm. I think they're really significant. He didn't just brush over them. So head yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, Jesus responds then, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mm-hmm. And he, here he's echoing a fundamental theme in the Hebrew Bible that God is good because of his unfailing love and faithfulness. Um, most of us mm-hmm. will be familiar with the phrase from the psalm, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And that's Psalm 118, one, mm-hmm. but it's also several other psalm verses. And this theme is reflected throughout the psalms. Mm-hmm. That's that's really the main point is, you know, you, God is the one who is good because God is the one whose unfailing love endures forever. Well, it, the question that comes to my mind is, did this man see Jesus as God and that 
I don't think if so. you will. I don't and think I don't so. think so either. No, but it did no. ca- it did cross my mind when I was yeah. reading this is yeah. did he see something into Jesus or I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't so. think so. And, and even the synoptic tradition had some trouble with the implication that Jesus was disavowing he was good because Matthew's account reframes the whole question. Mm-hmm. In Matthew, it's, teacher, what good deed, deed. Mm-hmm. must I do to have eternal life? Which is a whole different way of framing the question right. than, good teacher, what must I do right. to inherit eternal life? Right. So, um, and again, you know, the question of inheriting eternal life was about entering the kingdom of God, as we saw before in mm-hmm. Mark chapter 9. And, and we're going to see some other language, you know, the, the language of salvation is used here in this text as well. And, and it, all, it all kind of goes together in, in Jesus' theology. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let us move on. Um, how does Jesus respond to him? Well, I think Jesus' response is something that must sound strange to those of us who have been schooled by Paul and have been schooled by Reformed theology. He says simply, you know the commandments, and proceeds to cite several of the Ten Commandments along with an addition. And it seems clear that Jesus' answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was to keep the commandments. Now, given the fact that Paul goes to great lengths to argue precisely that one cannot gain eternal mm-hmm. life by keeping the commandments, and I, I think especially we should contrast uh, Galatians 3, 10 through 14, where he speaks of the obligation to do the law as its curse, uh, that um, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why so many people have looked at this passage and have tried to find a way to frame it so that Jesus does not really say, you know the commandments, do them. You know, mm-hmm, that's essentially mm-hmm. what Jesus says. And, you know, for those of us framed by Paul and framed by the Reformed tradition of justification by faith, you know, that just kind of cuts against the grain. But I would say we have to read Paul in his context, and we have to read Jesus in his context. And um, there may, I'm, I do think there's some, some, some connection and some overlap, but it, it is clear to me, in my opinion, that in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of obeying God's commands as the path to life. And, you know, it's interesting that the text that Paul quotes sort of in a negative way is Leviticus 18.5, you shall keep my statutes and ordinances mm-hmm. by doing so one shall live. Mm-hmm. I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty clear. You know, you will live if you, mm-hmm. if you do, if you keep my commandments. Um. I have thoughts about this, but I want to. I want to keep moving on with it. We can okay, talk about surely. that later. You know, sure. I, 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 and it probably is because I'm very much shaped. But I don't. I find that a. Str- I guess I find that a strange answer when you think about it. What must I do? He doesn't say you must do this. He's like you know the commandments. So it feels. It does feel we'll, we'll, a little bit. We'll look at it in terms of some other passages. Yeah, There's some parallel passages that I think shed some light. Okay. On this in okay. the gospels. So let's. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So. Go ahead and, and, and move forward. Now, um, it's interesting, I think, that while Jesus mostly quotes from the Ten Commandments, he also adds, and again, this is only in Mark, you shall not defraud as one of the commandments. So he says you should not, you should not commit adultery, you shall not steal, mm-hmm. you shall not kill, you shall not defraud. <laughs> you shall not bear false witness, you know. Uh, but where, So where does this you shall not defraud mm-hmm. thing come along? And it may allude to Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, which just talks about defrauding a neighbor through mm-hmm. deception or taking something that doesn't rightly belong to you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there, there is a sense in which defrauding, um, defrauding refers to defrauding a hired worker of his wages in Malachi, and I think there's a reference in Job about that as well. Mm-hmm. And we see in, in the book of Sirach, the wisdom of, of Jesus in Sirach, um, we see something similar. And in, actually in, in Sirach 34, 21, and 22, defrauding the poor mm-hmm. is equated with murder. <laughs> right. So well, yeah. So this this whole idea of defrauding was something that was a it was a Hebrew Bible concept and it right. was a serious thing. It was really about justice. Right. Now interesting Calvin's take on this is it's just it's kind of just a, a allusion to the the law. It's doesn't it, so specific that we need to be, you know, pulling them out one by one. Um mm. so that that comment may be just that it it fits within the broader context of the law. Well, I would say it fits within the broader, for Jesus, it fits within the broader context of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, I mean, think, I guess that's what what Calvin meant, right? The Ten yeah, Commandments specifically. Yeah, right. So, um, and but, I would say but for, not drawing a, I guess not making as big a deal about pulling out each one and making a big deal out of this particular statement. I, I guess. don't know that I would make a big deal out of each one. I think, though, that the issue is why is you shall not defraud in Mark's gospel? You know, when you think about the commandments, you think about the Ten mm-hmm. Commandments. But here Jesus adds another one, which, so Adela Yarbrough Collins in her, in her uh, Mark commentary quotes John Meyer. I don't know if you know the Catholic scholar, New Testament scholar John Meyer, but he wrote the book on the historical Jesus, literally three massive volumes on the mm-hmm. historical Jesus. And he has an article on the historical Jesus and the law where he points out that any application of the written commandments in Jesus' time would take place in the context of one or more interpretive traditions. So I think this is key. You know, we can't just refer to the commandments or we can't just assume that everybody is in agreement about the law. Um, For example, um, for some, the commandments would include all of Moses' precepts in the entire Torah, all five books, right? Exactly, exactly. For others, as we have seen, um, the law would include the traditions of the elders, right? Mm-hmm. For the Qumran community, the law was uh, basically the commands interpreted in light of how their teacher of righteousness interpreted them. So it, it, there is this mm-hmm. there is this kind of framework, and I think if we look at the at the at the way at sort of the interpretive framework of Jesus in the Gospels, I think we find some clues as to what Jesus means. At least we might not know what this man would have assumed, but at least I think we have some clues about what Jesus means. So in the first place, Jesus insists on keeping the spirit of the law, not Mm -hmm. just the letter, Mm -hmm. as we see in his comments in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. I agree. Not only shall you not kill, you should avoid the hostility in your heart that leads to murdering, you know, and and et cetera. So it's about, it's about, it's, it's, and we've seen this before, you know, it's not what, it's not what you eat, it's what comes out of your heart that is the problem, Mm -hmm. that is, that is really the issue. Um, uh, furthermore, Jesus advocates the keeping of the law as a means to life in the introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Um, you know, it's a similar kind of story, right, you know, where right. someone comes to him and say, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, the commandments, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and Jesus includes, right. you shall love your neighbors yourself. And, and then the, the scribe or, or the teacher of the law, I forget who it was, uh, says, and who is my neighbor? And he goes on to, Jesus then goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate the kind of mercy and compassion that defines keeping the commandments from his perspective. So I think that's key. In, yeah. in, you know, in Jesus' interpretive context, it is, it is mercy, it is love, it is compassion, uh, that is the framework right. for understanding how one properly keeps the commandments. 
Yeah. And then we see something similar in, in Mark 12, 28 through 34, where a scribe asked Jesus about the greatest commandment, and Jesus answers with the command to love God and neighbor. And the mm-hmm. scribe says, you've answered well. Truly, you know, the sum of the law is to, is to love God and to right, love others. Right, right. And Jesus says, you know, um, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I think... I think we see in some of these parallel contexts, I think that may answer, I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, when Jesus says, you know, the commandments, I think this is kind of what he's saying here is that right. the commandments, as he understands them, the commandments rightly understood, the commandments rightly applied, the commandments rightly right. lived out through the command to love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. That is the framework that Jesus is approaching. And so if one fulfills that, right. then, then that is the path to eternal life. Right. And I, yeah, and I, I think we'll see that overall Calvin will agree with this. Um, it may come at it a slightly different way. Well, and I um, think, so I think I've always seen Paul and I think therefore the, Refer- the Reformation and others are answering a different question than Jesus is answering. This, I think, I, I think, I think this man is asking the question, how shall I live my life? And Jesus says, live your life by God's word. Live your life by God's commands. And the essence of those commands in Jesus' mind is, love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Paul is answering more the question of, how do we come into right standing with God? How do we, how do we have the assurance that uh, we will be a part of the kingdom mm-hmm. in, all, in all eternity? How do we have assurance right. that we will have salvation and that our sins will be forgiven? And, and Paul says it's only by faith. Right. But then Paul right. will say we've been saved by grace through faith unto good works <laughs> that God created for us to do <laughs> because we're created in his image, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, well, I mean, it's kind of the chicken or the egg, you know, right? which is exactly. coming first. Exactly. And, and I don't think... I, I think Jesus says you, you have to be in the right frame of mind. You can't be doing these mm-hmm. works on their own mm-hmm. without having this this framework of love um, and without having this, what we ultimately will, the the uh, during Reformation and, or in Paul will identify as faith yeah. first. Or, and again, for, for Paul, the problem is you've got these Jewish, um, very pious people who are who are really kind of proud of being able to say I have kept the exactly. law perfectly. Well, like this fellow. I'm, Even. I, 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 I might beg to differ. A, well, about, okay, about this, this guy. Fellow. This guy is. This guy is is more I think honest he's and more sincere. I think he's sincere, but he's still confused because he's like right. I have done all these things and yet in his heart is I have to have the question answered because somehow it doesn't fulfill well, there's something I, missing and again I think I think that's reading that's maybe reading a reformation well, context well into this I guy. may be reading too much into this guy right but but, but um, I, there's still a reason he came and asked Jesus the sure, question sure sure um, but Paul is dealing with these Jewish um, pious um uh, people who are who are really extremely proud of their keeping of the commands, and it really does become it's right. all about what I do. Right. And, and and you know, I would say in Jesus' mind, you can't keep the commands unless you love God with exactly. all your heart. Yeah. And and loving God with all your heart 
doesn't include pride. You know, it's a, hum- it's a humble stance. And loving God with all your heart has to be come out of a faith stance. You know, right. it's, it, right. so I think Jesus is, is presuming right. a lot here that Paul maybe is, is unpacking in a little bit different way. Right, I agree. But I, I still don't think, I don't, I don't think we should try to read Jesus as answering Paul's question. Jesus is answering a different question. This man is coming and saying, I, I, I think essentially this man is saying, you know, I've lived, I've lived a righteous life. I've done the things that I've known to do. You know, what more do I lack? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he doesn't ask it that way in, in this gospel. He does ask it that way in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. But I think he's asking, you know, what more do I lack? What more do I need? And I think he's sincere about that. And, and, and we find that Jesus, you know, Jesus gives him a very Jewish answer. He gives him a very Jewish yeah, answer. Well, he does. You know? He does. Right. Um, he turns him back to God and just and and to say, you know, follow God, follow God's ways, and follow God's purpose, and 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 you do that by loving God and loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that also includes not stealing and not killing and not murdering and you know not not bearing false witness. Right. 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 Um, and so, in response, the man insists, "Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth." And I think again, you know, those who've been schooled by Paul, those who've been schooled by the Reformation theology, tend to say he was deluding himself about this. Um, but I think Jesus accepted his answer as a sincere one. Yeah, I think, well, I, I, I agree. And, and saw the potential in him to take a further step. Again, very much similar to the way he responded to the scribe in Mark 12, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I, w- I could see Jesus saying the same thing to this man. You're not far from the kingdom right. of God. And so Jesus continues, you lack one thing, go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now, I think we have to kind of take this in light of what follows. The phrase, sell all that you have, in connection with the fact that we're told that he went away grieving for he had many possessions, that indicates that he was wealthy. And I think this brings us to the real point of the story. This is the, this is the whole reason for the story in Mark's gospel. It's an illustration of the fact that wealth is an obstacle to the kind of faith that enables one to truly embrace God's rule in one's life and, and thus is an obstacle to even obeying the commands and to truly keeping the commands. Yeah, yeah. And thus it's, a, it's an obstacle to entering or inheriting the kingdom of God and having life. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's important to note here that in, 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 in verse 22, the fact that he has many possessions, um, it's, it translates the Greek phrase, ktemata pola. And I think it's important to note that particularly in the Septuagint, ktema translates the Hebrew for real property, such as lands, fields, vineyards, etc. We're not thinking about liquid wealth. We're thinking mm-hmm. about real property here. And this may help us understand why Jesus instructed the man to sell his property. You know, the, the, this has been a problem throughout the ages. Why did right. Jesus tell this man he had to sell all, the, all that he owned? Well, part of it may have been that... You know, the fact that, you know, one of the one of the main issues of economic injustice in Jewish society was right. the fact that the land, which was the means of generating a livelihood, was right. owned primarily by wealthy aristocrats, right. which was a violation of the explicit provisions of the Torah that no family should be permanently deprived of their land. Right. And right. so this may relate then to the question of not defrauding others above as well. Yeah. Well, and, and, and this makes sense because at, at what point, you have so way more than you need, mm-hmm. and then others are deprived of their their Basic livelihood. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
And, um, uh, you know, again, I think we see that the poor among the least of these, along with the hungry and displaced persons, mm-hmm. the oppressed, and even in this context, children, that, that, you know, Jesus directs the disciples to serve. And basically, Jesus says that if he does this, then he will have treasure in heaven. And mm-hmm. this reminds us of Matthew, which, where Jesus contrasts storing up treasure on earth with storing up treasure in heaven, although we're not told specifically how one does mm-hmm. that. But again... In Matthew, you know, the point is that you cannot serve God, God and, and wealth. wealth. And mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, maybe that may be part of the framework here is, you you know, that his his heart was too taken by wealth. And I think a lot of people have taken that point of view. But I wonder to what extent that Jesus was also saying, if you really want to keep the commands, if you really want to love God and your neighbor, then you'll sell that vast, those vast land holdings that you have. And you'll give the not only will you give it give it back to the people, but you'll give the money to the poor, mm-hmm. to the people whom whom basically you've defrauded by holding all that land, and and in a sense this is sort of the following the law of restitution in the Torah as well, mm-hmm. and so right. you know in a sense Jesus isn't it, perhaps he's telling this man the reason why he has to sell all of his property and give it to the poor is because he's he's defrauding the poor by by holding all that property in the first place. Of course, because he has so much property and apparently he's not willing to part with it, we're told that the man went away grieving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think all of us understand in some capacity, right? Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, you know, um, (laughs) I've used the example of of one of my favorite guitars. You know, um, I think it was, was, uh, yeah, it was Richard Foster in his Celebration of Discipline. When he was talking about the discipline of simplicity, he said, you know, maybe you should think about taking your most prized possession and giving it away to someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, in my case, I did that. I, I gave it away, and it wound up coming back to me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> several years later. Ah. So I have it back again, but I did give it away. And it was, it was my classical guitar, and, uh, you know, that was my prized possession in those days. Interesting. But, you know, I, it's, yeah, I mean... Um, who of us wants to give away our prized possessions? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah. the possessions that we see as being the basis for our financial security, you know? Yeah. For many people, it's also their identity, which is yes, interesting. It is. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. So there's a lot of things so we tied understand. up in that. We, we do understand, understand that this guy mm-hmm. went away grieving because I think he was really basically sincere. I don't think he was trying to justify himself. You know, there are other places where, right. where like, in, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the, the man who asked, who is my neighbor, Luke tells us he was trying to justify himself. And, yeah. and just the way Jesus responds yeah. to this guy, you know. Yeah, just. Um, it's, he says yeah. he, he loved him. He loved Jesus him. Jesus yeah, loved him. Yeah, he tells him. us he loved him. So yeah. we, we, we see a, a definite compassion with Jesus right. with this guy. Right. All right, so it kind of changes gear here. I mean, we have mm-hmm. the episode, but now we have Jesus talking to the disciples. Yeah. So tell us how how this works, how this is maybe his response to this. So Mark, Mark tells us then that Jesus tells the disciples how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And I think 
This is just another one of those things that Jesus said to his disciples that he might as well have been speaking a foreign language because this would have been just incredibly difficult for the disciples to grasp. I think this is a foreign language today, but that's... Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, perhaps, I mean, in that yeah. day, wealth was seen to be a sign of divine blessing and poverty was seen to be, or even illness was seen to be a sign of divine judgment. Um, knock, 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 prosperity gospel today. I mean, <laughs> right? yeah, right, it's not right. that far removed from today. Well, and I, I, I do think that if we have to, if we encounter any kind of financial difficulty, if we encounter things like that, you know, our first question is, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so we kind of go there too. And, and by the way, that, that mindset started very likely with the very specific blessings for obedience and the specific judgments for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. You know, Moses tells the people, if you obey, you'll be blessed in the country and blessed in the city and blessed in the lane and blessed in the field and blessed in the home and blessed here and blessed there. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed in the, in the country and cursed in the city and cursed in the lane and cursed in the field. And it's all very mm -hmm. specific. Now, Jesus' perspective, though, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God is very consistent with Jesus' general teachings about wealth as an obstacle to participating in the kingdom of God. And, you know, I, I didn't take the time to verify this, but in, just based on my memory, I don't think he ever speaks positively about wealth. I don't think Jesus says one positive thing about wealth. And so I think that's important for us to, to keep in hmm. mind. So it comes as no surprise that Mark tells us then that the disciples were perplexed at his words, you know, because they, they just, this right. just went Doesn't totally across, cut across the grain of what they expected. Now, what is surprising in Mark's gospel is that when Jesus repeats himself, he simply says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, so here he's not talking about for wealthy, he's talking about in general. In general, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Now, first, let, I think we should note that this repetition is only in Mark's gospel, mm -hmm. again. And I think we should also recognize that even in Mark's gospel, the majority of manuscripts reflect a variant here that adds a reference to those who trust in riches. How hard it is for those who uh, trust in riches uh, to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. So the, the manuscript tradition wasn't comfortable with that just general with, statement. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. But in the context, I, I think this statement simply echoes what Jesus has just said about the challenge of entering the kingdom in Mark 10, 15. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Jesus says those kinds of things on a number of occasions mm -hmm. about, the, about the challenge of, of the kingdom of God and, and, and that it is not an easy thing to enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So, But here in this context, I think it seems clear that the main point really is the challenge posed by wealth to participating in the kingdom of God. And we see that with Jesus going on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God in verse 25. And everybody knows about this, I think, because, you know, it's almost been infamous. Uh, I, I didn't take time to look up the name of the person who, who suggested this idea first, but, you know, supposedly there was a gate in Jerusalem that was named the eye of a needle because it was so small. And a camel could could not get through it easily, but it could maybe squeeze through with great difficulty. And, you know, the, this is just misses the point. You know, this just right. misses the point. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus' statement is intentionally hyperbolic. Right. Camel through a literal eye of a sewing needle. Right, you know? right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, again, that the disciples were astounded by this makes sense. 
They would have assumed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. But Jesus sees wealth as an all-encompassing loyalty that, by definition, excludes allegiance to God's mm-hmm. kingdom. And I think yeah. that's really the point in Jesus' teachings, you know, is that, is that wealth has a way of mastering us. Wealth has a way of claiming us. Oh, yeah. Our possessions have a way of possessing us. And, and so, you know, it's, it's impossible to truly uh, serve God and serve wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then this leads to a follow-up question on the part of the disciples. Who then can be saved? Because in their minds, yeah, if, right. if, if a, a wealthy person could not be saved, who could be, right? And um, so they're assuming that no one could be saved. And again, notice, be saved, entering life, entering the kingdom of God. These are all used mm-hmm, somewhat synonymously mm-hmm. in this passage. But Jesus applies a biblical principle here. For mortals, it is impossible but not for God, for God, all All things things are possible. possible. Yeah. And of course, that's first articulated in Genesis 18, 14, but it's also found in other places. Which it kind of takes the tension off of this because you get reading this through Mark. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about big Mark and and, and big Mark who's asking us, is is Jesus really the son of God? And and so big Mark is taking us and we're we're walking through this with, with Jesus and we're like, I, I can't be I can't me. Do this. It can't be I can't me. Do this. I, I, I am too. <sighs> I am too sinful. I, I am can't too live up below. To I can't yeah. live up to it. Yeah. And then you get that phrase, and it mm-hmm. kind of all of a sudden flips in your mind. Mm-hmm. But God, God can do these things, and it, it it's it's really remarkable too as you're reading along, and all of a sudden it's it's kind of like. It's kind of like you're freed from yeah. all of these um, this bondage. And so I think yeah. this is where Jesus' approach on the law really, really, really makes sense. Because I don't think Jesus was being ironic when people came to him and said, What's, what must I do to end, have eternal life? And he says, you know the commandments, right. follow them. Right. I don't think he's being ironic about that. Some people have claimed Jesus was being ironic mm. because he knew they could never do that. I don't think he was being ironic about that. I think he was being sincere, but he was he was saying that in this sense, you know. It's impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God on your own. Right. Only God can make it possible right. for you. Right. right. So you have to keep the two together. Mm. But I don't think we want to import Paul's theology into Jesus here. I think we need to need to let Paul be Paul and let Jesus be Jesus and let Jesus speak with his own voice. And I think that's kind of been obscured in the well, theological tradition. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you could see how, right? right? Because Paul is the one, you know, that we really give the beginning of the, the theology of the church. And Absolutely. so... Well, and not only that, but it's the root of the whole idea of justification by faith, which well, is the, the that, foundation of our Reformed faith. Right, that's our Reformed faith. But even prior to that, yeah. you know, you still... Paul is the, Paul is the right. apostle of the church. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So He's you, the teacher of the church. Exactly. Yeah. So we're really trying to deal with... You know, the Reformation's trying to deal with Paul and trying mm-hmm. to deal with what they see as as even a misrepresentation of what Paul wanted. So they, they get caught up with that because that has that's that's the practical church, right? Sure. Sure. So, and and Paul's letters are very practical in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think again, I, I my 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 emphasis is let Jesus be Jesus. Let Jesus speak in yeah, Jesus' I think own that's voice on this. Fair. Okay. Uh, and Jesus definitely says, you know, yeah, follow the commandments. But he also says, you know, for mortals it's impossible, but for God all things are possible. Mm-hmm. So then Mark tells us that Peter reminds Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. 
And it's unclear whether he's trying to justify some sort of claim on the kingdom. You know, we've, we've sacrificed everything. Or if he's just simply wondering what will become of them because they have left everything. Mm-hmm. You know, that, can, that could be part of it here. But again, Jesus takes his statement as a sincere one. Jesus doesn't pick it apart. He doesn't, he doesn't chide him or rebuke him. He just says, truly, I tell you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers mm-hmm. and sisters, mothers and children and fields. <laughs> right. And, and again, you know, that statement in that specificity is only found in Mark's gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic gist is found in Matthew and Luke, but it with the houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields, that's only found in Mark's gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, much of this makes sense in the context of the community of believers, you know, mm-hmm. right? Because you can right. see how if you leave brothers or sisters, mothers or children, you know, you're, you're going to find in the community of believers um, a community, a family, an extended family of brothers right. and sisters and mothers and children there. But the physical property, like houses and fields, that seemed that's kind of is to me. It was kind of strange, and I, 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 I didn't check this specifically, but I don't think that that all of this is found. I know it's not all found in Matthew and Luke. Right. I don't think any of it's found in Luke. Maybe he says fields in Matthew. I don't remember, but it's not the whole statement. And I think the the the, the physical property kind of raises a question, you know, how yeah. how are the how are the the disciples going to receive hundredfold of houses and right. fields, you know? Right. And we know of course that the early church practiced hospitality not only as a virtue but also as a necessity for traveling teachers and preachers. And perhaps this is part of the thought here in that they're I mean basically they would be welcomed into homes you know, wherever they found fellow believers, right? Right, right. right. And the, my, my home is your home kind of a hospitality. Right. But we might also think of the backdrop of someone like Barnabas giving a field he owned to the congregation in Jerusalem to benefit the, benefit the ministry. Right. That might be part right. of the backdrop as well. Now, not only does Mark have that specificity of all the things that they've given up and all the things that they will receive, but he also says, you know, they will receive houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions. Mm. (laughs) So even though you receive all this, it's not going to be easy. Well, and I think this reflects the idea that Mark's community. Was I was going to say was this is a historical kind yep. of. Uh, yep. We can definitely yeah. see that it, it makes sense with the context I think, of when it was I think written. this has to be a nod to Mark's. Yeah, community. How, how do you make sense of what's going on? Right, and it, how, how do you, how do you feel like we're receiving hundredfold of what we've given up if you're being persecuted? Right, right, right. 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 So I think Mark is trying to trying to help his com- his community make sense out of this. That yeah, there are persecutions, but there are also blessings that There's, come along with right. it. Right? Yeah. There's also blessings. So then Jesus concludes with many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And you know, I to me digging into this, I, I have been shocked that how how few times this saying occurs in the Gospels in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm. It, it only occurs a handful of times, and yet for us, we see it as, I think rightly, as a programmatic statement of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' kingdom, you know? Yeah. And, and this, of course, speaks of the theme of the great reversal, as it's been called. Right. But it, it's only here and in the parallel in Matthew 19.30, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20.16, and then in Luke 13.30. And that's it. 
That's those are the only places where this phrase occurs in the Synoptic Gospels, and you know we kind of with with how much with how much prominence it has in our understanding of Jesus, we think that this this ought to be something he said much right. more frequently, but apparently he didn't, and yet I think still it is a central statement. I was going to say I think it. It's a statement, and I think there's other things that happen that reflect this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you oh, know, surely. When we think oh, surely. Galactic Beatitudes. I mean, it was reflecting oh, this absolutely. kind of... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the theme of Great Reversal is not only found in this statement, right, obviously. Right, right. But this is, this, this is where you find it articulated uh, explicitly. Right. And, and, it, and the, the theme of the Great Reversal is that the standards of this age, in which the wealthy are honored right. and powerful, are already being subverted by the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. Now... The saying itself just says many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So that points to a future reality. But I think it's impossible to read Jesus and some of the other things like the Beatitudes and and the places where this theme seems to be put in a present context, even within Jesus' ministry, without seeing that already that the kingdom is, is subverting sort of the the structures of this age mm-hmm, mm-hmm. already in Jesus day and and I think we can say that the paradigm therefore for what it means to enter the life of the kingdom is the weakness and vulnerability of the least of these especially children mm-hmm. as we've seen before and and you know here we see again that the kingdom not only bursts the boundaries of typical religious expectations but it also makes pretty stout demands upon those who would participate in it and Mm -hmm. so then you come up with that how can i ever live up to this right how can i live up to this and jesus says well with god all things are right and that (laughs) and that's the framework and and um when we come back to talk about calvin in a little bit at least i am understanding calvin in terms of framework um Mm -hmm. how one comes to it now maybe i'm drawing too much into calvin but but how how we understand by what means that we are doing things. Sure. Okay, thanks. Yep. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy have a turn with uh, telling us how the Reformers took took an approach to this passage. So take it away, Christy. Yeah, so hi. I am... I'm starting off a little differently today because I think the way that Calvin interprets this in particular comes out in the visual. So I'm going to start with the visual, and that is really taking us to our Reformed churches. Now think about them. We don't tend to have images of Jesus, maybe one in his humanity. We tend to have these whitewashed walls. We know that there was... um, very much a restriction of, of images in the church that that was considered to be idolatry. And actually that comes out in part from the interpretation in the Ten Commandments. But the one thing that was allowed and that you see in particularly the first kind of Reformation churches in Europe and we also see in the United States were Ten Commandments. And mm. those could be posted mm visibly for everyone Mm -hmm. to see. So I picked out a couple images. The first one here, we're looking at an image of um, the church in Williamsburg. And here you see this very, very, very simple, simple church. There's, you know, kind of the whitewashed wall. Look, there's no images. Um, There's um, a communion table. There's a cross. And then there's the Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. right behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, So central to the church. And then I also gave another picture. This is an illustration. 
the same oh, yeah. thing, Boy. the Ten Commandments. And, and huge. And huge, <laughs> yeah. and huge. So imagine, and, and some of us are still in these, these churches that are, are pretty simple. They don't have a lot of images and things. But very few of us today are going into the church with these big Ten Commandments posted right in right. front of us. Right. But that was the trend. And, of course, they would have been in the vernacular. Um, so think about this, that what you see when you come to church is in front of your face, maybe bigger than the cross itself, are mm. the Ten Commandments. Wow. So, in other words, obviously, if we're expected to be familiar with them and have them in front of us, that this was considered to be a very, very important part of the Reformed tradition, that we are supposed to be people that are following the Ten Commandments. Sure, sure. And that comes directly out of Calvin's take on this scripture wow. in particular. Wow. Okay. So what's interesting here is, you know, Calvin goes by it piece by piece. And while, yes, I think he is influenced by Paul, as Alan suggested, um, I think beyond that, he, 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 he doesn't go so far as to go with Martin Luther. Now, mm-hmm. Luther, remember, was saying, look, it's justification by faith alone, and therefore the works are very much secondary. And there was an accusation actually in Lutheranism that um, this kind of antinomianism, you didn't have to do anything. Um, you could just be saved. If it's like a feel-good religion. And I, I think we might accuse people of that take today. In some context. In yeah. some context. That was not Calvin. Calvin said, oh, no, no, no. These are central Be central to 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 your faith mm-hmm. this responding to the commandments um and 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 doing the commandments and and i must say that's one of the things i love about calvin and the, and the reformed tradition is that you know it's it's not that there's an old covenant that has been superseded and is therefore obsolete and we have a new covenant mm-hmm. that really is the only one that matters but rather there's this continuity you know that that the old testament is just as much about grace as the New Testament is, and the New Testament is just as much about right. obedience as the right. Old Testament is. I love that continuity uh, between the t- between you know the the, the Old Testament, yeah, and the New absolutely, Testament and, and the Reformed it's tradition. Exactly where Calvin was, and his point was, we don't have something this new thing that superseded the old, but rather that this is a part of it. But his yes. take on it, at least how I understood his commentaries, is how it's framed Mm -hmm. so it's not in the doings but rather that it's that the the doings come out of the faith sure sure and you know there's a practical sense to that too it's like that we have to be doing these things right so in the front of our face so we are aware of them but yet our hearts are in the right space to do them and to do them well and 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 to do them with this kind of pure sense of joy when i I think when I bring up Ten Commandments, like to to uh, to youngsters, you know, they 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 hear law, mm-hmm. they hear rules, rules, yeah. they hear coming down hard, they hear judgment, and I think that's not the intent. I agree. It's it, that rather that these are uh, these are part of living in joy with God. Yeah, and and I think that's really where Calvin's coming from. Is this? of a joyous spirit that loves God is going Absolutely. to follow the commandments of God. I, I, I believe it was the Old Testament scholar Christopher Seitz who said it this way, that um, um, following the commandments, I'm paraphrasing his, him here, but following his commandment is the way a liberated people say thank you to God. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and so that's really you know kind of Calvin's take on this. Um, I wanted to say with this, which I think is interesting, there's been quite a bit of fairly recent research on this by Reformation historians. I think because it has this... The, the the trend now is really a lot of interdisciplinary things. Sure. And of course, one of the things now is not only in popular culture and how uh, and or how how the laity is understanding Reformation. Right. It used to always be we're going to study what the reformer said, and now there's a, a tendency to look at laity. Well, this is how they understood it. Mm. And so now bringing in and this was part of my work, but it's been way it's been really really moved from that point in time sure. to looking at um, not only what they said about what they learned, but what, what we can visually understand about it. And that's why something like... What they like, actually did, how yeah, they actually lived. Right, yeah. and coming into a church and seeing the Ten Commandments. So this this has been done fairly recently. One of the... David Steinmetz, who recently passed, I've mentioned um, Dr. Steinmetz before. I mean, he did some pieces on the Ten Commandments um, in a Reformation Um and really the centrality of the the Ten Commandments in their discussions and in their writings. Um, and while we can think of that as, oh, well, it's just the Reformation reformers' take on Old Testament, if you will, um, that this is really central part of the Reformation um, uh, process, that, that the Ten Commandments are are central to the faith then. Even, even Luther, who we tend to push aside, is... The law is not important. Even Luther is in his discussions about the Ten Commandments. The big thing is how the first commandment is interpreted. Mm. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Right? Because in the Reformed tradition, there's a sense of, well, idols, anything, those would include all the images in the church. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of there can be no other idols, there can be no other images in the church, and therefore you get this practice within the Reformed tradition of these simple, simple sanctuaries. But Luther didn't interpret that way, and neither does the Roman Catholic Church. So right there, you have a Ten Commandment kind of thing popping out at you. The same thing happens, of course, with the Lord's Supper Mm -hmm. and the, if you will, Mm -hmm. the idolatry of the host Mm -hmm. or indeed this, you know, all the way to Zwingli, this kind of um, symbolic use of it. So Again, here are these Ten Commandments and how they're understood by the Protestant reformers become a really, really big part of um, the whole Reformation and really the, the differences between your Reformed tradition and your, and your evangelical, your Lutheran tradition, if you will. So, sure. um, well, I think it's fascinating to look at how people actually express their faith as a way of seeing, you know, to what extent did the theology of the reformers actually take hold? Exactly, exactly. Another scholar I want to point out to you who wrote fairly recently in 2017 also wrote about the Ten Commandments in the English Reformation, which had um, a pretty big uh, direct impact on our American church. Um, and so it's for him, um, there's this, this, this kind of direct relationship between the balance between the works and faith that come out of this passage that and then he studies really how that impacts these actual practices of the church. And so he's the one that's really talking a lot about these images. Although I have to say, and I, I apologize, I, I, I have to find my notes, which are buried far away. I went to a paper on this at the 16th Century Studies Conference 
probably 2015, um, where there was a paper also talking about this, these Ten Commandments and really their impact then on Reformation practices. And of course, I think, I don't know, maybe Alan can comment this. We have seen a lot of churches put Ten Commandments right outside of their churches and the mm. public. And it be, remember, it became a big public yeah, property yeah. thing. Can they put these out there? Yeah. And when you think of traditions and kind of modern churches maybe forgetting about the Ten Commandments, that there's this kind of, um, it's kind of a harken back to this kind of Reformation era. Um, focus. Yeah. Focus, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and in my understanding, it was more of a debate of, you know, with the separation of church and state, right. is it legal to have Ten Commandments on like courtrooms and things like exactly. that? Yeah. E- exactly. So it had a different space, but yet the, these in particular the public spaces, but the private churches, how many of them were mm-hmm. putting up, you know, ten, 10 commandments, which I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of folks today see that as the Old Testament law and we're in a new space. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're kind of the, the antinomian, they, they're no law kind of mentality, um, which I think is a problem maybe in the contemporary church. Well, and you know, I think it is. I, you know, one of the things I find is so surprising is how many people have a hard time associating the first four commandments with the great commandment to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and associating the last six commandments with the second great commandment to love your neighbors mm-hmm. yourself. To me, that's, I know it's something that's just been a given for so long. It just seems yeah. like this is, this is basic knowledge. But when you ask folks in a classroom about, about how do you summarize, you know, what, what, you know, what, what is the sum of the law? What is the sum of the commandments? Right. People are just like, they look at you with blank stares. Oh, they have no they idea. They have no idea. And I, I to me, that kind of disconnect, you know, I'm, I, I, I've been kind of surprised at that because it seems so basic. You know? Yeah, yeah, it does. Although, it does. I mean, I mean, it goes back to the earliest Reformed catechisms, right? Right. That, that's, that connection is drawn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So heading back to Calvin, of course, we can't, we can't take Calvin completely. You know, I, I don't want to take him out of his context completely because Calvin is always responding to the reality of the church around him where he is seeing a Roman Catholic church and he is seeing practices that have gone completely awry where there seems to be an elevation of the priesthood where it's all about the what they do as opposed to um, what what they believe. And, and, and he's talking about, gosh, you know, there's all the pomp and all the circumstance and yet really when it comes down to caring for the poor and doing the true works of God, they're just not there. Mm. And so Calvin, you know, Calvin will often interpret this in terms of that reality, right? So uh, for example, when, when the, uh, the man here says, teacher, I've kept these laws since my youth, Calvin jumps up and says, "Uh, look, you know, so have the papists claimed to do this from their youth, but they're wrong. Mm. And again, I think it's all about, my interpretation is all about that framework, mm-hmm. that framework by which you understand what, is, what Jesus is, is wanting here. Is, and, and, and so looking in terms of what, and, and Calvin goes quite some time, is like, Christ does not require us to give up all our possessions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and possessions in themselves aren't bad. It's the coveting of the possessions mm-hmm. that causes the problem. It's the possessions that take your mind away from God's call on your life. So, and possessions have a tendency to do that. Sure. Um, 
So he talks in, in that terminology um, um, that the only way to perhaps you have to rid yourself of these things, which here possessions is the one that we talk about, but all these things that pull you away from this kind of true, this pure love that where you're, where you're responding out of grace and doing sure, things. Sure. You know, I find it, I find it ironic a little bit that, that, um, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I find it a little bit ironic that, um, Calvin would say that the, that the Catholic church was not tending the poor because, you know, in our day, you know, I've spent some time in the evangelical branch of the church where it's all about your relationship with God. Your relation, it's all about your relationship with Jesus, and it's all about your salvation going right, on when you right. die. And, and uh, yeah, at the same time, you know, in, in our day, the Catholic Church has been at the forefront absolutely. Of, of social justice movements oh, absolutely. in this country. And, and, of course, there were many pious people in the church. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd recognize that, but he's looking at the big institution and he's mm-hmm. looking at this institution that is sitting there acquiring wealth. Sure. We're looking at the institution that is taking the indulgence money mm-hmm. and using it to build this huge St. Peter's. Mm-hmm. We're looking at a church that is not filling the ministerial positions or they're being bought up by those who have more money. So you right. look and so when I say the church here, sure. I'm talking about more about the institution than individuals. Well, and I think you find some of that today. I mean, I think it's awfully hard for folks in a in a really massive and ornate cathedral to to be to be focused on that and and it's really more the small parishes you know, and, and right. sometimes the poor parishes that are much more focused on social justice issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's a tendency to that. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound this like an anti-Roman Catholic thing. It's, it certainly is not. But I am giving you the framework. And, of course, Calvin is, and, and Reformers as a whole, they're kind of in battle. They're in yeah. an intellectual yeah, battle, but they're also in physical battle with yeah. the Roman Catholics. Yeah. And so you've got Calvin reaching out to people that have left the Roman Catholic Church that are endangered for their lives. Mm-hmm. So there's a real animosity at this time in history that's a little hard for us to understand today. Yep. We've learned to we've learned division of state. We've learned to live in harmony with each other. We've learned to see our the different denominations as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not here. Yeah. Not here. And there's a very real sense that the Roman Catholics are definitely associated with evil. I mean, this... And well, there's a reason why the Scots Confession has the tone it has. Absolutely. (laughs) So uh, you have to kind of take that with a, you know, historical grain of salt, if you will. Sure, sure. Yeah. But anyway, um, I hope that's helpful today to get you thinking about how, how... something like this passage can move its way into this kind of physical reality mm-hmm. of, of the how church. A church is, how a church is sort of decorated even and what you see when you go into church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to talk about some contemporary implications of this passage for today, and so we're going to let Christy start us off. So I was thinking about this passage today, and um, my, my, my parents both recently passed, and in the uh, 
context of that, I inherited a lot of stuff. I inherited a lot of things. And um, it was during the height of COVID. We couldn't have the auction. And an auction's really nice because Mm -hmm. you allow auctioneers to put a value on something and auction it off to people. You know, we'll start at $10 or whatever. And I didn't have that luxury. So it really became getting all these things. And I caught myself really putting value in them and, 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 and money value in them. Mm-hmm. And so then it became, well, how do I sell this? Because what is it worth? And part of it is, and when you get caught up with that, then you, then an emotional sense of, well, my mother loved that. So it must be worth a lot of money. And all of a sudden you kind of get mixing out um, well, if I if I don't sell that for twenty dollars because it's worth twenty dollars, am I doing some disservice towards my love to my mm. parent? And I couldn't believe the emotional baggage mm-hmm. that came with that process mm. of all their things, and getting rid of their things is hard because those were things you associated with their home. And I did something really interesting. I had the garage sale, and I said everything's a dollar. Everything's a dollar. <laughs> wow. And what I found was that attachment to trying to value each thing and the debates that you have. Well, I think you need to give me, they were gone. And what happened is the people that needed the things or found value in them took them. They were thrilled. It was, hmm. it, they were so excited to get the, the, and it wasn't just giving them away, mm-hmm. but it was almost giving it away. But there was a sense of, of people um, being able to get things they needed um, at a cost they could, could get them for. And sure. it was just really cool. Uh. It was a really, really cool experience. Yeah. And yeah. I really felt at the end, um, I, I, it's like I, I got rid of all that association with the cost and the value and even the items themselves because all of a sudden these items, which I associate with my parents, now I knew we're going to new homes. It was it was really an interesting um, life experience, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I had a similar experience um, 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 in 2012. Um, I moved from a 2,400-square-foot home into a 600-square-foot apartment. <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> and you know when you when you make that drastic of a reduction you really do have to choose what you're going to take with you and you know I got rid of some books that I had that had been in boxes for years mm-hmm. you know and I and, and there was a time when I would have never thought that I would have gotten rid of those right you right. know and um but what I found is it's a kind of a freeing process, you know, and even, even, you know, I still live in an apartment, but I still find myself thinking, you know, I still have some things that are, that are stored away that I need to go through and get rid of some mm-hmm, of that stuff mm-hmm. because it's just, it's like we can be so easily encumbered by our possessions. Our possessions have a mm-hmm. way of possessing us. They really do. Um, you know, as, as, as it's been said by many, wealth has a way of mastering us. If we, if we don't, it, if we don't find a way to, to, to free ourselves from its mastery. It really does. And, and throughout the centuries, the, the time tested method of freeing yourself mm-hmm. from the mastery of wealth is to give it away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so, you know, and, and obviously, you know, we don't live in a setting where it's practical for anybody to give away everything they have because, you know, then you wind up on the street. Exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I think 
I, you know, one of the, and you know, I've taken the approach to several of Jesus' teachings that have been difficult. That I think the point of this passage is to keep us, you know, keep us always viewing the tension that it creates, and that we not try to smooth that over, but that we let it hold our feet to the let it hold our feet to the fire, Mm -hmm. and and pull us toward deeper discipleship in this area as well, Um, and uh, you know. Um, Richard Foster's suggestion that I mentioned earlier of taking your favorite possession and finding a way to give it away right. is a is an excellent one. Huge there are all one. kinds of ways of doing this. I, I mean, I think you know, I think tithing as a discipline is also something you know. It has fallen by the wayside. Right. It, well, it, it has. It really, really has. And, and and part of that is is due, I think, to our our consumer culture. You know, our culture tells us you. Absolutely. Owe yourself to get this because you deserve it. So here's the whole thing. This is this has been many years ago. I've been married a long time, but even then there was a formula by which you should buy your wife's diamond based on some percentage of two your, months' salary was what I learned, and and that's what it's worth. And uh, I probably have mentioned that before, but. Again, that that the value is placed on that as opposed to, or how many how many dresses, how many thousands of dollars of dresses are going that's worn once, and mm-hmm. it it isn't, and, and not that the ceremony is fine, but but it becomes it becomes the wealth, it becomes all about mm-hmm. how big the wedding is instead of how happy the marriage is. I mean, how many how many people get married because. Of the big celebration, yep. rather than because they are really wanting to start a home together. Very, just I very know. interesting. Well, things. you know that my son um, Michael um, is a trumpet player. He plays. He's a jazz trumpet player, and he he um, is with the Navy band. And right now, he's taking uh, a break from the Navy. The Britain Navy lets him do that to work on his master's degree in in jazz trumpet at New England Conservatory um, in of music in Boston. And Michael has some friends who do wedding gigs on oh, Martha's yes. Vineyard. Yeah, oh yes, cool. And so he gets paid well for doing this. But you know, he he recently told me that he they were they were trying to figure out how much this one couple spent on their wedding, and it was in the hundreds of thousands of oh, I'm dollars. Sure. I'm sure. And, and you know, this just boggles my mind. You it know, really it just does. boggles it, my it, mind. I know it is really. And interesting, and that's just you know, one example of how many places where we really, where we really have a lot of emphasis on wealth and mm-hmm. possessions, and I, I guess the prestige those bring us for others that admire us for our wealth. So many many moons ago, it had to be about oh, th- almost thirty years ago. I worked at a really high end clothing shop. Oh yeah, and. Um, the richest ladies in Indianapolis went there uh-huh. and uh, it was interesting. And the gal was like, I have, and now mind you, it's 30 years ago. She was, I have nothing in my shop under $75, nothing. And uh, most of the items, you know, individual items and pants were like $200 or, or more a piece. And um, the, uh, uh, there, there, I had a woman that worked there and, and she was like, I, I, I want. I have to have a bigger diamond than that because I want people to think I have all this money. It was very important to her to have mm. that wealth and the wow. people that worked there that shopped from her. I guess because I was all a twenty something and 
I, I somehow could get by in my poverty sure. there. But it was a weird experience. And these women would drop, oh, $10,000 a shot sometimes. Uh, very interesting life experience. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and yet, of course, they would be... I, the big joke with the ladies was, and the gal, the owner, she said she would go to Italy and pick out individual pieces and bring them in her store. But she did this because these ladies were in a society group that they couldn't show up in the same dress as another lady. So they wanted to make sure it was a one and only. One off. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's yep. so a very, incredible. yeah, very yeah. interesting experience. Well, and, you know, I mean, I'm bringing it back down to sort of a practical application. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to find ways to practice the discipline of simplicity um, if for no other reason than to free ourselves from, uh, unfortunately, in, a, in this society, we need things to live. You know, we right. have to right. have certain things to live. Right. And um, so we can't just, just, you know, sell all that we have and, and, and just go live in a monastery. That's not really an option for most of us. Right. And, um, or give it away, you know, give it to the monastery or whatever. It's not really an option for most of us, but we can find ways, I think, to, um, to master the, um, power that wealth, um, tends to exert over us and the the way in which it draws us into being all consumed with it and, and then therefore not really having the freedom to love God with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. I agree. One of the things I'm working on in this way um, with my youth, my confirmation class, is to to think of ourselves as givers. So we are practicing at confirmation, you know, when the piggy bank comes around, when the, if you will, the, their offering plate, that we're going to put something in it because that's going to go mm-hmm. for something for someone else. And someone says, well, a lot of these youngsters, they don't make their own money. So, And I said, you know what? We're going to, but they have money, they have money and we're going to help create that habit of giving and just the joy of being able to give. I I mean, I grew up in a very middle-class home, you know, my parents were teachers and you know, we weren't wealthy by any means, but I had my own money to spend when I was a teenager. They have money. And, 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 and I even told them, I even told the parents, look, if your child does not make their own money, then this time help them, you know, Mm -hmm. say, okay, $10 $10 for tomorrow, put a dollar of it in that sure. confirmation. So they sure. can learn to, to see also not the spirit of giving, the practice of giving, if you will, the yeah. practice of right. doing the 10 commandments the is similar, right? Yeah. The discipline. Yeah. Yeah. And then look at when everybody gives what we can buy. And so we're going to be looking at the um, giving catalog oh, at the nice. end of the year nice. and, and find, and you know, there are things in there from just a few dollars way up to quite a bit. And so they, my nice. hope is we get halfway through and we start saying, Oh my gosh, if we could just have this much more, we could buy a cow or, right. uh, you know, right. 10 chickens or something. So right. I'm really excited about the project, but I think it's going to help create in their minds being a giver. And I think that's important. Well, and, it, you know, in my church, um, I've always, you know, in my prayer of dedication for the offering, I've always said gifts and offerings. I recently came to the point of thinking, you know, I'm not really doing anybody a service by that. I'm going to say gifts and tithes and offerings 
because just to say the T word in Good worship. Good idea. Just to say the T word in worship. I like that. Just reminds people. It's a gentle reminder that, yeah. hey, you know, uh, tr- tr- truly speaking, the biblical teaching about tithing is varied. I mean, there was some tithe that was up to a third of, of what you had, you know. But, right. but, you know, I think, and, and I, you know, I think the practice of trying to set aside 10% is a good goal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody starts there necessarily. I think you start with wherever right. you are right. and you try to increase you it to, to the increase place it. where you feel like you yeah. you are giving substantially. And right. it, it is it is a significant enough gift that you are you are avoiding this this uh, possible pitfall of your right. wealth mastering you. And and I don't think just a token throwing throwing a 20 in the in the in right. the plate is is going to do that for most people. I agree. Well, yeah, because once you start to give enough that you notice you're giving, mm-hmm. then that's when you have the ownership in the church Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And interesting, really quickly, you know, one of the questions with COVID, most of most churches aren't passing plates right now right. and um, one of the questions my staff was asking is, do we need to begin passing them? And at least for me and our business administrator was absolutely, because again, there's this physicality sure. of pra- and a lot of people, they can't let it go by if they don't put something into it. And so there's a, there's a whole commun- communal aspect of passing the plate that mm-hmm. I think is exceedingly important. It's a little bit like the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It is. Yeah, it makes it more of an act of worship. Exactly. And yeah. so it reminds you of the whole body and um, of Christ. And I think, it, uh, I think it's a really healthy way to encourage giving, yeah, giving surely. of self. Surely, yeah. All right, well, hopefully we've uh, provided you with some food for thought for your sermon preparation, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.